0: Uh, Good evening, um, and thank you all very much for coming. Uh, This is the culmination of what's been an extraordinary week at St Peter's, graced by a brilliant set of lectures from Mark Thompson, Uh, more of him in a second, um, playing to packed houses. Uh, This has been the inaugural year of the Humanitas Visiting Professorship of Rhetoric and Public Persuasion, And before I talk briefly about the dazzling panel arrayed before you, I thought I'd say something about the Humanitas program. These are a series of visiting lectureships in Oxford and indeed Cambridge, where leading practitioners and scholars come to address major issues in the humanities and the social sciences. The idea of the Humanitas Professorships came from Lord Weidenfeld, who was indeed with us uh, on Wednesday, Uh, and they are supported by a series of benefactors. In this case, uh, the University and the College would like to pay particular thanks to Freud Communications. But these particular lectures have another root. They are in memory of the late Philip Gould, who rather poignantly died almost exactly a year ago today, at the young age of 61. And so it's a particular pleasure that his widow, Gail Reebuck and his two daughters, Georgia and Grace, are with us tonight. Philip Gould, as I'm sure most of you know, was Tony Blair's principal pollster, but also his chief political strategist. And anyone who met him knew that he thought very long and hard... ...about the relationship between policy, language and politics... ...and not merely to gain tactical advantage in the daily political battle... ...but because he knew that those issues helped to define the shape and nature of the democracy that we live in. And he cared about that. Uh, I went with him to a seminar in 2001 to discuss what had been a huge victory for Tony Blair... ...and I remember the conversation which lasted throughout the day... Not a note of triumphalism in it, just keenness to reflect on precisely the issues that Mark Thompson has been talking about this week. And Mark himself talked about Philip Gould movingly earlier this week, and I'm sure shares these reflections. And now the panel and the chair. Uh, Mark Thompson himself was a humanities student here, or when I say here, I mean our country cousins up the road at Merton. Uh, where he uh, read English and survived before going to the BBC where he rose very quickly and very high. He is at heart a journalist, something that's been made apparent by these lectures all week. He edited the main evening television news program, then Panorama, before subsequently becoming controller of BBC 2, a a brief excursion to uh, Channel 4 in the beginning of this millennium saw him returning after a BBC crisis. This is just to reassure you that there have been crises before this one uh, in 2004 and he left the director generalship only this autumn. Uh, He was a truly outstanding director general and instead of opting for the quiet life, um, he's decided to go off to the calm waters of the New York Times where he begins on Monday. Uh, Andrew Marr, uh, who's going to chair this evening's proceedings, has been an extremely good friend of St Peter's. This is his fourth visit here in the last two years and is one of those people who, in a subjective comment, but one I'm prepared to defend, is worth the BBC licence fee alone. Um, uh, he presents um, an indispensable... political We can have a vote on it. He pre- presents an indispensable political show on Sunday and, of course, start the week on Monday mornings at Radio 4, and beyond that is a brilliant documentary maker and also writes a series of authoritative and extremely successful books. Polly Toynbee is a columnist for The Guardian, but not any old columnist. Even her opponents, and I hope Polly wouldn't mind me saying that I think she does have opponents, uh, know that she simply has to be read. She's been columnist of the year won a handful of prizes, and unlike most other people who commentate, she actually reads the literature of the policy debates before she writes the articles. Uh, Baron O'Donnell, known to most people as Gus, was until last year cabinet secretary, thus making him the country's senior civil servant. His initials, Gus O'Donnell, you will work out spelled God, a reference not merely to his name, but the esteem in which he was held. And finally, David Willits. Um, David is Minister of State for Universities and Science, and there's some evidence of that outside. Um, I knew the applause wasn't for me. Um, uh, It's not that he's here because of that. It's an extremely important point. I wanted David to come not because he's the Minister for Universities and Science, but that anybody who knows David knows that he is a profound political thinker interested in philosophy, language, Uh, and has been musing and writing about these issues for a long period of time. And so it's a very particular pleasure that he's been able to spare time from his boxers to come and be with us tonight. So it's wonderful that they're here. Uh, It's wonderful that you're all here. And for the next hour and a half or so, I'm going to leave you in the safe hands of Andrew and Marr. So, ladies and gentlemen, Andrew Marr.
1: Thank you very much indeed, uh, Mark. Um, just before we formally get going, I'm just going to explain a little bit about the uh, structure and the shape um, of this evening so you understand what's going to happen. I, in, in, in a minute or two, am going to coarsely, brutally try to summarise some of the main themes in Mark's uh, three lectures. That's what we journalists do. Um, they are, I have to say, um, utterly formidable um, pieces of um, advocacy and uh, deep thinking. Um, A brilliant start, I think, to this series, uh, Mark, Um, quite extraordinary. Um, I had to read them on the page. I really wish I'd been able to hear them um, in person, but I'm going to give you uh, a reminder of some of the key themes in the lectures. Then I'm going to talk to the panel, give them the chance to respond initially and relatively briefly. Having heard the responses, Mark will then come in again. And it's going to feel after that for 20 minutes or so, I hope, a little bit like start the week. We're going to have um, a roundtable conversation picking up some of the key themes and some of the arguments. And after that, it's over to you. Um, and I'll be looking for um, pithy, pointed, uh, not too long questions and interjections, and you'll get the chance Um, to have Mark responding um, along with the rest of the very distinguished panel. And so to The Cloud of Unknowing, um, the title that Mark chose for these three lectures. And as I take it, his main theme is what he calls, um, very frankly and directly, a decadence um, in our public language, our ability to debate. Um, He says we are getting worse at communicating and discussing the great issues of the age. And this is because of a decadence of language. It's because of a multiple crisis of authority. And it's because of the effect of new technologies on those. And the solutions he gives uh, are complex, but they are based on a renewed understanding of rhetoric and a revived intolerance of lying in public life. Although the word rhetoric can um, sound uh, a relatively abstract one. Mark also makes, I think, one of the fundamental points, um, which is that a decadence of rhetoric means a decadence of democracy itself. If our political language is failing, then our institutions, our ability to take complex decisions and consider wisely difficult choices is itself failing. So this is a very urgent um, and important question and of course it comes just after uh, the American presidential election. Uh, Barack Obama um, struggled in his first debate, again a matter of political language and he has been hamstrung ever since the 2010 midterm elections um, by the Republicans' uh, seizure of the House of Representatives and Washington gridlock. Now why did that happen? It happened because Barack Obama was unable to effectively and coherently frame and explain his proposed changes to American healthcare. And therefore, it's particularly interesting that Mark chose, right at the beginning of his first lecture, to focus on the use of that deadly little term, death panels, by Sarah Palin, and explained how that uh, entered the, the consciousness, the bloodstream of American debate. And much of his first lecture, you may recall, is indeed about that uh, ability um, for small um, phrases, individual words, um, to enter and simplify in a damaging way political debate. And as he also pointed out, it may not just be words, it can be images such as the the two towers attack on on 9-11. And I'm just going to quote very briefly um, from that first um, lecture just to remind you again. He concluded that there were five factors which produced a decadence in our public language, a deep background of social and cultural suspicion, policy which is more complex, politicians struggling to differentiate themselves, and a century of empirically based advances in the understanding and construction of public language, by which he meant um, things like the work of Frank Luntz, um, who is able to test focus group, opinion poll, particular phrases. And so he turns to politicians like David Willetts and says, you must say, you must use the following words, fairness, decency. You must say, I get it, because these things work. Um, and he concludes that, uh, that essay by talking, uh, as I suggested, that this is much more than a, a, a discussion about verbal dexterity or good communication The risk is that a language and a set of institutions which were once both a competitive advantage, our democracies, and a guarantee of freedom, may falter. In the second lecture, he turns to the question of authority and, in particular, scientific authority and the privileged position that science has in our political debate, though he says that this depends on the science being complete, uh, the science being uh, not seriously contested inside the scientific community and, of course, the science not being corrupted um, by money. Uh, He lays about him um, in uh, fine form, I have to say, Um, has a serious go at the coverage of the Today programme over its MMR vaccine uh, coverage, which he describes as ignorant and shallow journalism, and he engages in some controversy with one of our panellists, Polly Toynbee, on the framing of debate around the government's health reforms, and I suspect we may get on to that later on. But he concludes by saying, science is the most formidable intellectual force of our age, perhaps any age. However, the irony is that without the insights of the humanities, it may still find itself without words. We finally come on in the third lecture, uh, which you may remember uh, started by contrasting uh, Winston Churchill's great 1940 standalone moment, uh, with Tony Blair's speech on the Iraq War in the House of Commons, um, moving through to a series of proposed answers or pro- um, solutions to this. And I won't give them all, but above all, he says, we need civic literacy. We need to teach citizens how to pass public language in all its many forms, from marketing speak to the loftiest political utterances, to the use of video. We need our citizens to study rhetoric again. And he also calls for more fact-checking, more exposure of falsehood, um, and more long-form and complex journalism, issuing turning points and critical moments. Many of us, I have to say, would be completely wordless if we weren't allowed to define almost everything as a turning point, a critical moment or a crisis. But there we are. He is calling for deeper and calmer attitudes among politicians. As he says, rhetoric is all around us. We can hear a form of rhetoric out there. We're going to get a very different form of rhetoric in this room. But it matters the more, the more democratic and plural and open a society is. I'm going to turn now to the panel and I'm going to start by asking... God, uh, Lord O'Donnell, Gus O'Donnell, who as Cabinet Secretary, Permanent Secretary at the Treasury, has been perhaps more at the centre of watching the difficulties and the controversies around debates than almost anyone I can think of to give us his response to these lectures.
2: Thank you very much Andrew and I think I'll probably stand because there's a little bit of rhetoric behind this. First of all I want to say a big thank you to Mark for what I thought was some incredibly thought-provoking lectures, but far more important than that, he's done something that I've been struggling for all my life, which is to find a reason why I spent so many years studying O-level Greek and Latin at school. So that's good. Um, I want to talk about language first and then go on to authority and evidence. And I want to do this with two hats on. The language part from my time as press secretary. I was press secretary to John Major when he was prime minister, chancellor and prime minister. And and that created some episodes which I think are quite useful to look back on as uses of rhetoric. For example, I was with him at the Maastricht uh, European Council, where very important council where they decided they would go for a single currency, economic and monetary union. And there have been a lot of negotiations within the cabinet to come up with a negotiating position. Uh, in the end, they'd said, you've got to go there and get an opt-out on everything to do with economic and monetary union and various other things. He delivered all those. At the end, the question was, how do you sum all of this up? And someone in his entourage said, well, you've won everything. We should call it game, set and match to the UK. Now, John Major didn't like this idea because he felt that this was belittling his European colleagues and he had very good relationships with people like Chancellor Cole. He decided to use it because the argument was made about actually this has got to be a victory because your hardest task, this turned out to be completely true, was getting the treaty through the House of Commons, which he did occasionally by one vote. Interesting use of rhetoric uh, to come up with that phrase. A second use of rhetoric, and again I'll use a John Major example, when he took over from Margaret Thatcher, the big issue, they'd been rioting in the streets bit more violently than that, I have to say, uh, about the poll tax. Now, what was the poll tax? The poll tax was, in fact, the community charge. It became known as the poll tax, which is uh, comes back to my days as an academic economist. This was something we economists raved about. This was a, an ideal non-distortionary tax, and so it was very, very good. Turns out, politically, it was very, very bad. And when it came to replacing it, John Major, Sarah Hogg, myself sat down, and we decided to call the replacement, which we thought might last five years. This was back in the early 1990s. Uh, something where we'd pin this tax to what it was paying for, which was your services provided by your council. So it became the council tax, and we thought people might blame councils when it went up. It's still there. Uh, so I do get the, the, the idea of rhetoric. For me, it's a subclass within the set of things which... Uh, I think we know as nudges. It's a behavioral game, and using rhetoric to nudge things, I think, is is basically what both of those things were about. There's also a very important game played by politicians, which is completely anti-rhetoric. The most extreme form of anti-rhetoric, to my mind, is silence. And if you want to kill a story, quite often, it's used in government, is just don't put anybody up. Let the thing go away. Do not stoke this story. So quite often silence is used. The other form of use, so I had a really brilliant example of this with Gordon Brown when I was with him in Hong Kong. He's being interviewed for the BBC by Peter Jay, and he wanted to say something totally unmemorable about the economy. Right? He wanted it not to be the soundbite. So I spent a lot of time with him, being an academic economist, as you can imagine. We had Ed Balls, so we talked a lot about whether neoclassical endogenous growth theory should be part of this soundbite. In the end, we came up with something which, by definition, no one can remember. Not even me. But it did have the words continuous, going back to towards the medium-term trend of long-term sustainable growth. It was rubbish. And it worked perfectly, right? So remember that sometimes the use of rhetoric is the reverse of what you'll think, It's actually, uh, this has happened quite often in select committees. When you go into a select committee and they're trying to get you to say, well, the economy is in recession, isn't it? And you're a treasury official. Actually, you don't want to repeat the question because they are looking for you to have the R word emerge from your lips. That's the game. And quite often the game is played. And of course, all of this does not aid understanding. But it is the world we're in when there are challenges going on. And I think that's... When you see select committees and you see people that do not understand it at all, do not get the game, I give you the head of G4S, uh, you will see quite how badly they perform in this world, quite how someone trying uh, to just go at it without thinking about it fails. So that's what I like to say about language. The second thing is I hope Mark will follow this up. This is all about rhetoric and words, but actually, when you look at the trust, where do people get their trusted news from? It's from the TV. And I think the combination of words and pictures, as Mark picks up in the 9 11, is absolutely crucial. A picture is worth a thousand words. If ever you see those dreadful PowerPoint slides where someone goes back and looks at basically their speaking notes, I want to cry. And I tell people that work for me, they've got to be pictures. Not words, please. And pictures are incredibly powerful. So I think if we just think about rhetoric, we miss something very big. Uh, Secondly, let me come on to the question of authority and evidence. This, I think, is best borne out by crises. Whenever there's a crisis in government, we think about how should we manage this. Again, it comes back to the picture. Quite often, people really don't take in what you're telling them, but they see the picture, and that stays with them. So if we have a crisis, which is a health crisis, and if you look back on them, the first version of foot and mouth, you'll see a junior minister up there. Towards the end, when we're looking at, say, the swine flu crisis, who have we got up there? The chief medical officer. If I want to get across a position of authority, sorry, David, I would not put up during a crisis a minister uh, unless it was uh, a specific kind. What I'd like to do is someone in uniform. Any uniform, you love uniforms. When you're asked about trust, 92% of you love people, doctors in white coats, military, all of that. You love it. You're a suckers for uniforms. So, um, you know, uh, I I would say use a uniform. So the picture uh, tells a lot. When it comes to the question of evidence and what they say and whether it's real or not, I'm a real... My wife won't let me watch Question Time. When Question Time is on, I scream at the television. I scream at the uh, people, be they the ministers, or the opposition ministers, or the audience. Because quite often, the facts, underlying what they're saying, are completely wrong. I want to be like those, the Muppets. You know, there are two guys, old guys up there. I want to be up there saying, actually, can I put my hand up? That's not true. What you just said's not true. We had a great example of it last night on Question Time. They asked them how many people were going to vote in the police commissioner's vote that's coming up next week. Half of them said they'd vote. Pork pie, right? Half of them won't vote unless the the Question Time audience is really weird. I, I predict the number will be closer to 20, 25%. About half that. Interesting. So I'd love there to be a, a kind of objective lie checker somewhere. And I think polit- uh, journalists should really be out there and really kill things that go wrong. The death panels was an interesting example of a killer quote. I'd love there to be more killer facts. Finally, I can see uh, Andrew getting... Uh, I think we have to start with understanding. Really interesting The people queued up a Northern Rock crisis to get their money out. Very rational to queue up, totally irrational to go away with a check. You needed to go there with a suitcase and get the money. (laughs) Finally, on balance, this is where I do take issue and I pick up what Mark said about the Today program. They're forever wanting balance in these debates, which means Mark says, let's weight it by the science. And if the science tells you, and then we'll give it in proportion to that. In fact, what happens on nearly all of the debates, on nearly all the channels, is we have A versus B. We have pro versus anti, right? And that gives you the black and white game. My challenge, as a former civil servant who's there for honesty, objectivity, integrity, and impartiality, is to say the challenge for us is not to make the black versus white, but what we need to do is to make grey sexy.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much, Gus. Um, David, uh, well, it's as um, a proponent, uh, as a practitioner, um, not only a political practitioner, but also the Minister for Science, particularly interested to hear your response to that, given... Um, the privileged position, Mark says, science does and should have in the debate.
3: Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you very much. And let me just give some quick reactions. Of course, when you heard Gus say that we've got to make grey sexy, this is the man who worked for John Major. And, and this is what he dedicated his career to. Uh, so, um, let me say, first of all, I thought that Mark's three lectures were really excellent, and of course they analysed rhetoric, and you could see the training, you see the the study of the English, and before that the classics coming out in this study of rhetoric, and what I was reminded, I was just checking up, scrolling through it, was the great George Orwell essay, Politics in the English Language, uh, which analyses the incredibly stale rhetoric of politicians in the 1920s and 30s. And I take some heart from the fact that the criticisms that George Orwell makes about political communication then uh, were at least as severe as what Mark says about political communication and the reporting of it today. So I think we should not panic that this is suddenly some extraordinary problem. And indeed, I think in some ways, the skill that goes into communication today means often Um, messages are more vividly put images are more fresh uh, communication is more effective than it was in the past and I have to say that Philip Gould played a very important role in that and I have myself memories of what a shrewd observer and activist in the political scene he was but I think there are two or three things that are special about what we're going through today I just wanted to make two quick observations First of all, you give the example, Mark, in your lecture of Churchill's war speeches. And the problem for us in politics nowadays is if Churchill were giving one of his war speeches now, after two minutes, the volume would be turned down and you would go to three experts in the studio who would discuss what Churchill really meant. And someone would say he's got pressure from his backbenches, so notice he's had to come to the House of Commons and give the speech. And someone else, there'd be some military strategist who'd say that his form of words carefully avoids answering some crucial questions at the moment about exactly how the military campaign is going. And the intermediaries would mean that the idea that you would have had 10 or 15 minutes of sustained direct communication from the Prime Minister would be very difficult today. And one of the paradoxes we have in politics is that although in theory the media has brought direct communication closer, in reality, the intermediaries between us and audiences have become more intrusive and get in the way more often. And this creates a culture in which, first of all, we reach out for the narrative. I think it was Patricia Hewitt who first use the word narrative. The first active politician to use the word narrative, only just over 10 years ago. But we need a narrative so that when the commentators are describing what they think Churchill is really doing, we've offered to them in advance our explanation of what Churchill is really saying. And so with narrative comes spin, and with spin comes this whole belief that behind Everything you've got to find what's really being done. The great story, I think, of Talleyrand, when the death of some rival European diplomat was reported to him. He's supposed to have stroked his chin and say, now, why did he do that?
4: <laughs> now,
3: so this is the kind of sort of compelling rise of the need for the narrative behind it. Um, and in turn, often that alternative... Because we then tried to spin to get our narrative then there are the conspiracy theorists who have their alternative narratives who are sceptical about everything. And sometimes their scepticism becomes so passionate, it's almost a new form of irrational belief in its own right. And I think the, the inability sometimes to take a message directly, the, the, in, in, political, in political assessment, in political reporting, and I see some very distinguished political reporters here, who I would, of course, excuse from this. There's also the stock-taking habit. There's the, so how is his stock in the stock market of politics? So you deliver some speech about some issue that, as a minister, you may either have been focusing on or got your head round, you hope, or you care about, and instead of this is what he thinks about energy policy or even, dare I say it, this is what he thinks about universities policy, it becomes now why did he deliver this speech today? Does this mean his stock has gone up all gone down. Good day for him, bad day for him. Going to be promoted, going to be sacked. All that stuff gets in the way of sometimes better just to take the direct substance rather than get caught up in this, in this attempt always to find the other underlying reason. I think that's a frustration we have nowadays in politics. Second point is that uh, as we are a more diverse society, it's very hard to find arguments... ...that appeal to people across a wide range of cultural and religious traditions. And John Rawls in in Principles of Justice brilliantly argues for what he calls the test of public reason. The test of arguments that will appeal to people without assuming a shared cultural or religious set of beliefs and assumptions. Those type of arguments are very important. And I think it's one of the reasons for the rise of science and the increasing importance of science and scientific evidence in public debate. Because the appeal to empirical evidence and science is one of the ways that you can try to reach beyond the cacophony of screamed opinion about ethics or morals or cultural issues. So I I think that the, the rise of, the, of that kind of empiricism is one of the good things that's happening today. And dare I say it, I think it's one of the things that the coalition has been good for. Because in the coalition, when you're sitting around a cabinet or a cabinet committee table, you can't just appeal to tribal loyalty to get something through. Every meeting of a cabinet or cabinet committee has got people from two different political parties. And I think it's been quite good... For evidence-based policy. And my final point, therefore, is this. That, of course, when we communicate in the theatre of politics, be it in the Chamber of the House of Commons or on the TV or under questioning, we are trying to explain what we do, sometimes well, sometimes badly. When you watch the reflective process of the decision being, being taken... I think, in my experience, it's a decline of the rhetorical trick and the rise of evidence-based policy that should really give us heart. Thank you very much. Thank Andy. you very much, David. So, mm.
1: We've heard from an eminent public servant. We've heard from an eminent politician. Now we're going to hear from an eminent commentator whose job day-to-day, week-by-week, is to explain and act as an advocate Um, for policy, Polly Toynbee from The Guardian. Polly.
5: Thank you. Working with Mark in the the BBC, with both Marks, um, getting that balance is extraordinarily difficult. It is a a balancing act. You are all the time having, in one year, people complaining you've gone too far one way, in the other year that you've gone too far the other way, and then you reckon perhaps you've got it about right. Nevertheless, I don't think that although it's the most trusted, the most important, and the way we're going, it may end up being just about the only news outlet left since everybody else is, uh, all the other newspapers are, are in deep, deep trouble and who knows where we'll be in 10 years' time. Nevertheless, the BBC wouldn't be enough on its own. I think um, the BBC has a, a neutering effect on argument, and I'd like to just say a word or two about why political argument matters, why we need politicians to be passionate and to put the case. All right, they simplify. All right, they reduce things to nuggets and maybe brutally to quite coarse points. But in the end, people want an argument. They want to hear which side they're on. And most people are instinctively on one side or the other. You've made it sound like the vanity of small difference these days, as if Well, after the wall came down, there really was nothing to argue about anymore. I think we've seen in the American election, there are very profound things to argue about. The difference between Barack Obama and the Tea Party arguments was deep and profound. It goes right to the heart of almost every aspect of everybody's life. How they think about themselves as a community, as an individual within a community. Whether they regard government as an expression of the collective good, or whether they regard it as an alien enemy that's out to get you and uh, that colours everything about the way you see the world around you. And I think that you do need people who put forward those arguments strongly. And the idea that you can somehow end up with a sensible compromise in the middle is a very BBC view. And I do think, Mark, my only critique of what you say is that you take that rather lofty attitude, which is perhaps sitting too long in the ivory tower above it all um, at the BBC, I don't think we do live in in, in decadent times, I think there are amazingly important things going on. I think what happened uh, with the great crash, what's happened since, with the decisions of government to go for austerity, to impose extreme austerity on some people in some countries, uh, very brutal, uh, in some ways a bit underreported I think, perhaps because those of us who are in jobs and are doing the reporting are still pretty comfortable and pretty secure. Uh, I think we'll look back and think that we didn't report it terribly well, not that this was a time with uh, small differences between the political parties grossly exaggerated by artificial language. I think if you look even within the context of British politics, which is, thank goodness, a little calmer than American politics, I think if you look, for instance, at at how the cuts have been presented, I would say there is a profound difference between the parties. Um, I think if you look at the way benefits have hit some people very hard, if you look at who has taken the pain, you know, not just that there was a tax cut at the top, perhaps that's, you know, perhaps that is rhetoric and less important. What's actually happened is how deep the cuts have been for the people at the bottom. And I think that has been underreported by the BBC. I think the BBC hasn't known how to cope with that. I don't think there's been very much reporting about the numbers of people now being evicted from where they live uh, because of the housing benefit cuts. Uh, I think the extent to which Ian Duncan Smith has got away in a lot of interviews, including, I have to say, Andrew, I thought the other day with you, um, with saying, you know, there are hard-working people who go out to work and they see a scrounger next door, behind a, a, a shutters down, not working, uh, having lots of children on the state is such a misrepresentation and caricature of what people's lives are really like. And the fact that most of the poor are actually in work is something he never says. The fact that those out of work are desperately seeking it, but they can't find the jobs, often underreported. So it seems to me that there is a lot of passion that needs to be injected into political debate. Uh, And it all depends who you are and where you're seeing it from. Uh, And we can very easily sit in a comfortable position and say, well, it's not really too bad. Uh, we seem to be getting through this crisis quite well, unless you go and look at the people who are being most affected by it. So I do think political argument matters. Um, I do think that that's very important. Uh, I do, on the, the other hand, think that something has poisoned our politics since the arrival of the blogosphere, sphere, all of that. I think the sheer volume of acid and poison produced by people anonymously, uh, the amount of bile, Poured out every day against anybody. I mean, utterly, the most innocuous people, if they become even slightly, bit, you know, uncontroversial people, even a bit famous, find themselves bombarded with hatred and jealousy by goodness knows who, uh, because they never can have it. Uh, they can never reply and answer back. And there is a danger of that tipping over into political discourse and over into our commentaries that we feel all the time the pressure to shout that bit louder, to write those bigger headlines, to ex- push a case a little bit further than it would go because you are all the time up against that volume of noise that has total contempt for the, for the dead tree uh, press saying, you know, the real truth is out here in this raucous world out there. Well, sometimes it is, but very often it isn't, particularly if you don't know who they are and where they've come from. I do think that we, though, do have a duty to, who are political commentators, commentators of all sorts, to uh, believe in politicians. And I do. I argue with them fiercely. But I believe in politics as being a noble profession. And that's a very difficult thing to say these days because they're held in such contempt. The expenses crisis didn't help that, but it started well before that. And endlessly, I'm talking to groups of people, to students, to other people, talking up the value of politics. we We worship democracy to such an extent that we're willing to go to war all over the world to impose it on others, and yet we have utter contempt for the people who actually practice it at home. And I think we need to remind everybody that, you know, we may differ deeply, possibly less with him than an awful lot of them, Uh, apart from those people out there. I always seem to be up with this one. He's the reasonable face that's always being put forward. I have personal arguments with them, but it doesn't mean that I despise what they do or I think they're all liars. I think we have very different views of the world, his party, and and the Guardian view of the world, but that doesn't mean that they're disreputable. And I think we have to hold on to that very tight. I'll stop there.
1: Thank you. Polly, thank you very much. Well, mark, maybe you 'd like to respond um, briefly before we open up the debate
4: very 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 briefly. Uh, I mean, I thought all three contributions were, in, were incredibly interesting and um, thought provoking um, just in responding to, to Polly, and I think I may well be guilty of, of not being clear enough on, on, on this point. I think so. um, I, I, I wasn't intending to make an argument against politics or against political argument as such. I, I, I mean, insofar as I'm, I'm making a debate, it's between, in a sense, I mean, to be without getting too high highfalutin about it, per- Pericles, who stands for political argument and discussion and debate and believes in all those things, and Plato, who dismisses it as being unnecessary and all the rest of it. And actually, I, I'm talking more about whether there's a way of. Clarifying and strengthening the efficacy of political debate Mm. in ways which help the public connect with it better and understand the underlying policy choices better, but absolutely in the context of ideological differences and different uh, different, um, uh, solutions being proposed by different Mm. politicians. I mean, I think if you believe in democracy, you have to believe in the clash of ideas and the clash of different personalities. And actually, it's precisely because I believe that that's the right way of conducting politics, that I think you need to have, have a care to the way language plays in it. But just very briefly to say, I, I think what both in different ways Gus and David reflected was, you know, we live in a world, I think it's rather different from the, the uh, rhetorical landscape that George Orwell was, was uh, in that great essay was talking about, a world where um, narratives, uh, preconceptions, Uh, very very rapid movement of people ideas into very fixed uh, quantities and and also enormous pressure both on politicians and on journalists to play by those rules so in a sense you find yourself very quickly playing inside a game which has got known rules and I'm, I'm very interested in kind of what does politics, what should politics consist of now, and what should journalism consist Mm. of. And since you've talked a bit about journalism, just a a few points. I I absolutely do believe um, that 50-50 balance, in all sorts of ways, is a mistake. I absolutely do not believe, although I think think it's an observable fact that compromise is getting harder to argue for, I don't believe that compromise is always the right thing, the right right outcome. I'm I'm simply saying compromise... (laughs) take the Congress in the United States is getting much harder to achieve. Sometimes, though, the right answers are not compromise answers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that journalists, and it's very hard of this, and for the reasons we all know, all of us who are journalists, have to sometimes pour cold water on stories themselves. You shouldn't mm-hmm. need a government to kind of go silent to know that a story is not a story. You should sometimes actually go to the editor and say, you know what, I've looked into this and this isn't a story. Yeah. It's very difficult to do that. The, the culture of journalism and the greater the competition, the greater the culture, is to sell stories, to sell stories to your editors. Mm. And actually, mm. objectivity and correctly understanding where a story sits in the hierarchy, and sometimes it sits at a place where, you know what, you don't want to broadcast it or print it, that's the kind of way in which journalists can sometimes help. Mm. So. Very. Maybe I
1: could, I could kick off the sort of round table, Mark, by asking that... Uh, about ideology, which is one of the things that you talk about, but, but, but pretty briskly,
4: yeah.
1: um, because it could be argued, take, taking Polly's uh, points absolutely into account that there are genuine, huge differences between political positions here and in the States and in Europe. Nonetheless, um, people of my age were brought up with um, ideology. Um, you were a socialist. Your world fitted together in a specific way everything seemed to make sense and that framed a particular way of using language and the way language then connected to real politics or if you were a a free market um, conservative there was again quite a strong ideological belief in how society would get better and better and better given uh, markets allowed to operate as freely as possible and the withdrawal of the state and it could be argued that part of the problem with the decadence of language that you describe is that because of the collapse of um, the Soviet and communist age um, and the struggles of traditional socialist parties in the West, and then because of the the crisis in banking and to a certain extent the crisis in market economies uh, on the other side, these ideologies have fallen away and people are left simply with clutches of words, fairness, um, I get it, um, decency, um, and 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 the, the,
4: the fragments bobbing on the ocean. So, so there's a lot of ideology out there still, uh, and a lot of passion behind the ideology, to use, use Polly's words. But it, it's getting harder, I think, particularly for members of the public, to work out what's going on. There was a moment in the um, debate about the Lansley healthcare bill, I think last summer, summer of 2011, mm. when Alan Milburn, who a, a, a new Labour health minister went out publicly to say to Lansley, you've got to stick to your guns on this reform. Mm. Um, So, so in a sense, Alan Milburn defines the debate as between modernisers, who've got a particular view of what should happen to the health service, as opposed to a a simple left-right ideological Mm. battle. And and what I would say is, it's not that ideology doesn't exist, it's not very possibly that we won't see a return to very clear... Structures of ideology and, and straightforward I- ideological debate, and you could argue in America we see much more of that left-right straightforward mm. ideological battleground. Though whether that consists ultimately of ideology or something which is more a kind of values-based difference of opinion, um, you, you could debate. But I think it, I think we're living through a period where ideology is simply somewhat more fragmentary and slightly harder for the public to use as a kind of map for understanding mm. what's going on. And I think, I mean, if I'd done a fourth lecture, it would have been about ideology. I, I think it's a further, slightly at the moment, complicating factor. But I, I don't think the answer is to say, you know, forget ideology, let's just go to technocratic discussion about policy issues. Mm. I, I believe that the, the, the democratic politics is always going to need, you know, differences and competition between different values and different perspectives on the world. Mm.
1: David, when you're, I mean... Um, framing an argument to a conservative audience, mm. to a general. to what extent do you feel that you are framing it in an ideological, openly ideological way? As a conservative, I have a philosophical uh, Oakeshottian view of the world, and this is how it works, and this is how my policy... Or do you think that people simply won't listen to that anymore?
3: I think people are, by and large, not persuaded by deductive politics. You start with some... Statement of some principle or theory and then apply it. I think that a more inductive style of politics is closer to the spirit of the age. Mm. If I may give one example of this, which actually led... was one of the reasons why I wrote my book about fairness between the generations. It's a very interesting thought experiment they've done in the US. But they get a group, group of people together and say, imagine you are the, the board... Responsible for a, a woodland you've got, some, you've got some, a patch of forest that you're responsible for and you've got to decide what to do with it and, one quest, and the question is whether to, uh, to, to, to uh, cut it down and sell the timber and the first argument that comes along is people who say if the price of wood is going up it is economically rational for us to delay cutting down this timber until later on so don't cut it down now Classic appeal to economic market rationality, which you might argue my party is associated with, moves some people. They, they, They don't find it a particularly persuasive argument. Second argument is the people in the nearby town enjoy the amenity of this woodland. We have an obligation to the wider community now to let them continue to enjoy it. A classic horizontal appeal to community affects some people but doesn't particularly sway them. The third argument is, we only have this woodland because previous generations left it for us. We have a similar obligation to pass this woodland on to future generations. A much more powerful argument that actually gets more of a response than the other two. And part of what I was trying to do in the book is I actually think there may be other types of argument, other types of appeal that are more persuasive than, as you rightly said, appealing to an incredibly stale uh, argument that was framed in the days of Marxism versus uh, pure free market capitalism, which I don't think is where the political debate is anymore. Mm.
1: Polly, do you think, I mean, the, the Guardian in some <laughs> respects is a, a rare bastion of ideology, up to a point anyway. I mean, I know everybody argues about it, but.
5: I don't, I suppose we are, mm. but we're also quite a rainbow. Um, in the sense that uh, you know, it went all the way from people who wanted to support the Lib Dems last time to people who were really quite far to the left, at parties that scarcely exist anymore. Um, I, think that, um, I think that ideology is there more than people think. I think it remains the case that people lean to the left or lean to the right by instinct, by nature. They may not put those labels on it. But within a short space of time, if you have a conversation with a stranger, a young person perhaps, who's not used to necessarily thinking in terms of party political terms or left and right, you very quickly see which side of the spectrum they fall on. Um, I I was talking to Peter Kellner yesterday, who is one of our leading pollsters from YouGov, And he said, well, these days you can identify people really only by what newspaper they read. I don't know what he's going to do when we don't have newspapers anymore. But um, he said that that's the real identifier, that's the crucial one. And I feel that it is there and it lies deeply in people to be either small state, you're on your own, individualists, rugged frontiersmen, or uh, we're all in this together, uh, we should pay for others less fortunate than ourselves. And I think that which of the, all of us have a bit of that both sides of the brain within us, but which one mm. dominates is on the whole pretty defining. Yeah.
1: Gus, you've spent your entire life um, trying to produce solutions outside ideology and these kind of framing um, systems of thought, but what, what, so what do you think about well, it? Well,
2: I think it comes back to something that, that Mark and, and David both mentioned about evidence-based policy, and I think if you're in a civil service and you are trying to present policy options to ministers, one of the things you want to do is get out there, look, here's what the science says, here's what the social science says, the social science is always going to be a bit more, you know, we can't do experiments in the same mm. way they can in science, so And then basically try and get some of that evidence base across. So when it comes to this discussion about political debates, I suppose what I cry out for is a question time where you get a few more experts and a few less politicians, dare I say. So we could actually have a a little bit of discussion at the start about from people who have spent their lives studying the subject. Wouldn't that be... (laughs) Polly's set of facts about, you know, welfare recipients, for example. We get someone from the IFS to give us some numbers. Wouldn't that be great? So that the framework of the discussion was, so they couldn't get away with things that aren't true. Because we do know that ideology influences people enormously. When they read something, they dislike it if it goes against their ideological premises. Keynes had this wonderful quote about we're all kind of captured by some pathetic economic model that we actually were taught many, many years ago. And if you actually got to the heart of it, you'd be able to expose it. And I think things like the financial crisis exposed some of the basic economic models, which were based on assumptions about the way markets operated. Some of our basic economics is based on assumptions about the way people make choices that we now know are fundamentally wrong.
1: Mm. Um, I'd like to pursue the the question of authority, which we've just started to talk about here. Because, um, Mark, you make the the argument that we do live in a science-based society. to a certain extent, an evidence-based polity. Um, And yet, um, there are plenty of moments when a renegade, somebody from the outside, um, wants to have a go. And when it comes to organisations like the BBC, easier perhaps for newspapers, you get back to what you're talking about. How do you balance... Um, the consensus of climate change scientists, on the one hand, with the need in an open and democratic society to give people who disagree fundamentally a voice. It's really hard.
4: Though my basic answer is, is due proportion, a, 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 that you, you don't give a smoking enthusiast equal time with, with a doctor who talks about the, 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 the uh, health risks of smoking you, 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 you may have even a distinguished British artist on uh, 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 sometimes to talk about how much he likes smoking and so on. Mm. But it's rare, and it should be very rare. So, and, and, and broadly, with climate change, the broad approach, um, which not just, I think, the music should approach, but it has been approached, mm. is not never to have climate sceptics on, but to try, you know, over time, and typically when there's a set piece, to reflect the relative balance of scientific opinion. Of scientific opinion.
1: Um, it, th- this also leads on to um, another um, complex area that you mm-hmm. discuss, um, incommensurable um, world views, yeah. where you have um, two forms of thinking which aren't actually going to be able to have a conversation together. And yeah. use the example of a woman's right to choose versus um, religious objections to abortion. But you could also use the example, of course, of David Hockney and smoking, where he says the pleasure that I get from smoking my cigarettes and what that does to my life is not something that you measure. And just because you say more people get lung cancer um, if they smoke, that doesn't really affect what I'm talking about, which is something different.
4: And and I think the point is... it's not the purpose of journalism or of broadcasting to fit everything into a kind of, you know, evening with the debating society where you can reach a conclusion. One of the things you're trying to do is try and reflect the diversity of opinion, including incommensurable opinions, and just kind of record them. Mm. I mean, I, I, you know, bluntly, I don't think Debbie Hockney should be on the air every day saying that, but, but, <laughs> but, but you know... But, from time but, to time. Yeah. You know, the, fact that, the fact that he says that and believes that is a fact, and it, it, you can have it on, on the yeah. air. But I, so I, I, I think what I would say I, one thing that interests me about the abortion debate, I think it's got a different quality in the United States than it does in the UK still. Although I think you could hear in the UK some of the tendency towards, as well the US, very sort of black mm. and white uh, approach to the debate you still typically will get politicians quite quickly here arguing about the number of weeks. They're still thinking, you know, should the legislation be changed, should it be moved two weeks, one week? It has still, the it still changed, feels yeah. like it has the science changed. Mm-hmm. It still feels like many of the participants in the debate, and the politicians, are still trying to frame it in, you know, um, do we need to make an adjustment to the law as opposed to, you know, I stand for good, you stand for evil.
3: Can I, can I just stick with that climate change example? Because I think it brings out a crucial distinction. Whether or not there is a process of global warming uh, driven by carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere is ultimately an empirical question. It will not be determined by a democratic vote. And by and large, science does not proceed by a show of hands and what the majority or the minority think. Uh, And for that, I'm a layman, but for me it is pretty clear of the overwhelming balance of evidence that some process like that is happening. Whether you should respond to it by trying to slow the process down, how much effort you put into decarbonizing your energy system as against how much money you spend building flood defenses, how you react to it, uh, whether you think uh, new geoengineering is a great advance or extremely dangerous. Those are all subjects on which there are a wide range of views. And I think, and actually you said at the beginning about the difference between you said between Pericles and Plato. To some extent, I thought you were trying to distinguish between two rather ty- different types of decisions. The Plato model is, is, gl- is climate change happening or not? The Pericles model is, let's democratically to decide how we respond to it instead yeah. of policy questions. And what gets frustrated is when all those get
4: jumbled up and we don't disentangle them. Though, though, as I said in that second speech, disentangling them is very hard because so many of the participants, for understandable reasons, want to combine the two. Mm. Uh, sorry, Gus, Well,
2: I, I'm just going to say, climate change is a rather easy example for us to use because I think you know there's there's a big weight of evidence one way, and, and there's there's some sceptics. If we look back to the financial crisis, yes. where the big weight of evidence, the IMF were very clear that the growth of financial derivatives was a very good thing because it reduced risk yeah. in the financial system, and and the question is when we look back on that and say, were we good at managing yeah. that? the tail risk debate and the answer was actually we made assumptions that kind of ruled that out from the start oh. so I think there is something where we're, we're, we find it very difficult to uh, take on some of the quotes received wisdoms when the, the future isn't exactly uh, a
1: reflection of what's happened in the past. I'd just like to I'd, I'd, I'd bring Paul in in a second on, on another thing that struck me certainly from these lectures which was that the tension running through them all between what was happening in American um, political conversation and debate and what is happening here. Um, And there were two things I wanted to raise, and I'd like to hear Polly talking about them as well. Um, Clearly, the American debate happens in sort of separated silos much more than our public debate here. You have MSNBC, you have Fox News, you have people listening to their own um, uh, prejudices being reflected back more, I think, than is happening here. Is that a reflection of the fact that there is no um, major agreed public platform like the BBC so. in the States? Um, and, and following on from that, um, do we think that um, those American memes, those, the, 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 the more extreme, purist worldviews, um, are infecting political debate here at a fast rate, thanks to technology. The Guardian is particularly relevant for this because you are the biggest liberal voice, I think, in the States online at the moment. Um, And you get a whacking and a kicking day in, day out by people from Ohio or Cincinnati or wherever.
5: Yeah. Uh, Thank goodness we we, we do have uh, a broadcasting law that prevents us having Fox News here, though uh, we very nearly might have done I have a feeling that if Rupert Murdoch had been able to take over B-Sky-B, that's the way we would have gone next. But I've heard you, Mark, though, argue sometimes that perhaps the broadcasting laws should be relaxed and perhaps they are too strict. Do you still feel that or do you feel that the raucousness that we're seeing across the Atlantic now means we should really hold very tight to ask you know, for all of the, its deficiencies that I've talked about, uh, nevertheless, it is a bedrock of trust. And would you really, would you really be willing to undermine that?
4: So, so the, the, I think the debate really, for, for me, um, comes, comes to another, a question really about the speed of convergence of media. Um, I, I don't think anyone seriously believes that you can hope to regulate the internet in the in ways, in ways which broadcasting w- was historically... Uh, uh, regulated. I mean, I, I believe very strongly in the in the positive mandate for public service broadcasting. So, in trying to preserve public service broadcasting at the BBC, but also uh, um, uh, ITV, Channel Four, um, as well. I, I'm sceptical about whether, as it were, a negative mandate, where you say, and by the way, that's the only kind of uh, uh, news we'll allow in broadcasting, will survive the point at which every television is, is also connected to the internet mm. and the distinction between a, in quote television news programme and a news programme uh, made by, by a newspaper, let's say a privately owned newspaper, which has got a perspective on the left or right, is also available on the television as well. So uh, mine's really a practical point, that I think whether we want it or not, there's going to be a much greater plurality of news, of news media and the historic distinction between broadcasting and the rest of the news is going to be hard to maintain.
1: I want to open it up and say, I just want to press you one more time on that, however, because it's not simply plurality, it's where the country has the conversation with itself.
4: Well, this, this is an incredibly important point, and I think it is, um, it is true of, and I think almost uniquely true of the UK. Mm. Even to other European countries where they have very powerful public broadcasters don't have quite the sense of a kind of coming together, a kind of town hall meeting, which programmes like Question Time and Any Questions and, and many others others, others do. Um, I don't think this is the only thing that's at work in the US, by the way. I think that there's a very different tradition, a church-based tradition of oratory and of a greater, frankly, ease and less embarrassment about blending very strong moral talk, not just from the, from the right, but from the left as well, with, with politics. The politics, even in, in, in the Victorian era, has got a much less mm. stuffy, much more passionate, much sometimes more extreme flavour to it sometimes than the, the parliamentary language in this country at the same time. So I think there are yeah, other factors okay. as well.